Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode features Ada Limon, and I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Ada Limon is the author of four books of poetry, Lucky Wreck, Sharks in the Rivers, Bright Dead Things, and most recently, The Carrying. I spoke with Ada at my apartment on September 20th, 2019, the morning after the two of us read together at NYU. We have many friends in common, but I'd only met Ada once in person before the night we read together. In 2013, my friend, D.A. Powell, invited me to be his date to the National Book Awards. It was quite a thrill to attend this gala and cheer for all the poetry finalists and for the winner, my friend, Mary Shebist. D.A. Powell was one of the judges that year, as were Craig Morgan Teicher and Ada Limon. I was seated at Ada's table but barely got a chance to speak with her. Ada's poetry is personal, intimate, and forthright, but looks more traditional on the page than my work does, and her work deploys compression, density of language, beautifully honed figurative language, and narrative. I'd been reading a lot of hybrid poems and books of long poems and poems that sometimes didn't seem like poems at all, which is closer to my aesthetic. I found it such a pleasure, therefore, and a bit of a relief to reread The Carrying and Bright Dead Things, and to watch videos of Ada reading from her work and speaking about poetry. It was a pleasure to be in the presence of an organized mind, a focused but vulnerable poetics. It was similarly a delight to read with Ada and afterwards go out to dinner with her, a few of her friends, Matthew Rohr, Craig Teicher, and Soren Stockman, and most of all, to speak with her for a few hours about book prizes, money, how it feels to have a new book out, the terror of revealing secrets, and much more. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. All Commonplace patrons will get access to an audio file of Ada Limon reading Robert Haas's poem, Fate Music, as well as an extra audio file of Ada reading one of her poems, audio files of Ada and of me reading at NYU. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Ada's books, The Carrying, Bright Dead Things, Sharks in the Rivers, and Lucky Wreck. Many thanks to Milkweed and Autumn House for these wonderful books. Ada has generously donated eight beautiful broadsides to Commonplace, and the next eight people who sign up to become patrons at the level of $10 or more a month will receive one of these signed broadsides. To find out how to become a patron of Commonplace, visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash commonpodcast, or our website, which is commonpodcast.com. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no institutional or corporate funding. The podcast is made possible because of our patrons. If you're already a patron, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you also to the NYU Creative Writing Program to access for the audio of our reading and for hosting our reading. Thank you to Omaine Gruich and Justin Todd Smith for the transcript for this and other episodes. 
I want to take a minute to apologize that Commonplace has been a bit slow in posting new episodes and explain what's going on with me. In July, I started to feel my brain working again after months of serious anemia. And even though my body was still weak from the hysterectomy, I was so grateful to feel like myself again. Unfortunately, as soon as mental clarity began to resurface, so did some pretty intense anxiety. Then, at the end of August, when I was in Maine, enjoying some much-needed course prep time as well as precious time alone with my husband, my youngest son broke his arm while at a five-night overnight soccer camp. It was scary for all of us, and we had to rush back to New York to get him medical treatment. My middle son started college a few days later, and my oldest son went back to college for his sophomore year. The semester began, my new book Sound Machine came out, and I started a social media campaign to promote my immersive audio project, also called Sound Machine. And I started publishing the first audio pieces on Bandcamp. Between teaching, doing readings for Sound Machine, recording commonplace conversations, encountering various parenting challenges, all while seeing a not-great-for-me therapist, well, my mood tanked. Was this caused by one of the above or all of the above, or was my difficulty concentrating and feelings of hopelessness a physical after-effect of the hysterectomy? Many women, especially but not only women with a history of mood disorders, report depression after a hysterectomy, despite the fact that most medical doctors say there's no medical basis for post-hysterectomy depression if you still have your ovaries. Perhaps it was a hormonal shift of perimenopause. Of course, it could be any or all of these things. I also suspected that something about the new way I was engaging with social media to promote my book and audio project was having a very, very bad effect on my well-being. While editing this conversation with Ada that you are about to hear, another thought occurred to me. In this conversation, Ada says she never could have published the poems in The Carrying about deciding to stop fertility treatments without having already come to terms with her decision to stop trying to have a child. It occurred to me when I heard her say this, that I have just published a book in which none of the central concerns have been resolved in my real life. I consulted a wise woman healer I am blessed to know, and she said she felt that the publication of Sound Machine, while not the only thing going on, was likely the precipitating cause of my plummeting mood. After all, she reminded me, the last time I published a book, it was pretty traumatic. Mothers and the pedestrians both came out in the wake of my mother's sudden and traumatizing death. Or maybe it's just super, super hard for some people to publish a book, and it's hard to talk about the difficulty without sounding ungrateful. Like Ada, I stopped drinking coffee as soon as this book came out. But listening to this conversation, I realized I wasn't able to lean into gratitude for the amazing life I have, and this, to me, was a sign that something was seriously wrong, and I needed more support. Making Commonplace is one of my great joys in life. 
The immersion and excitement of preparing for the conversations, the intense focus of sitting face to face with an artist I deeply admire, talking intimately and in depth about their work and life, re-listening and editing these conversations, each time having unexpected awakenings and epiphanies. These are true pleasures, but it's also work and harder when I feel fuzzy-headed or low, particularly when I'm insecure, unsure of myself, self-conscious, off. So I'm seeking out some support and exploring a bunch of ideas that hopefully will ease and restore my sense of gratitude and greater well-being. I wanted to be honest with you, listeners, because I don't know how to make this podcast without a certain level of transparency, and because you've been so supportive and encouraging of me in the past. Commonplace, with all its delights, continues, but perhaps a little slower than usual and with a quieter social media presence from me, while I try to figure out how to climb out of this hole. In the meantime, I give you this beautiful conversation with the incredible poet, Ada Limon. Hi, Ada. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm... A little bit hungover. <laughs> That's so weird. I'm not hungover at all. I don't know what you're talking. I don't know I, what you're referring to. I know. Um, yeah, I've never actually started a podcast conversation that way before. <laughs> but it's always good to be transparent up to a point. Um, although you're probably thinking, I don't know what that point is after having read with me last night and then gone out to dinner. Um but I, I'm going to be appropriate. Um, I'm really... I'll try to do the same. Okay, good. Or you could be not appropriate. <laughs> and for once, I could try to be <laughs> more appropriate. I don't know. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you about your book and your books and your work and your life. And I, um, I really want to start with this question I was kind of hoping we could talk a tiny bit about prizes. Mm. Um, You know, the 2019 National Book Award list just came out, the long list. It's an amazing list. And um, I'm really interested in prizes from lots of kind of different perspectives um, in terms of what they do to the people kind of in the community, what they signal to people outside of the poetry community, outside of the literary community, um, the function of them, the feeling of them. And you're a really interesting person to talk to about this because um, your book, um, uh, Bright Dead Things, was nominated for the National Book Award and for the National National Book Critics Circle Award and for the Kingsley Tufts and I think even another one that I'm not remembering but in any case it didn't win those Um, and so uh, I was my book Museum of Accidents was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2009 Um, so I know how it felt for me when I was there Um, you know, when it was nominated and then when I was there at the award ceremony and didn't win, I would love to know what that felt like, not because I'm a cruel person, but I'm really, really interested. And I think, I think people are interested in that and people don't usually talk about it. I'm interested in what it felt like to not, 
to be nominated but not win. But then we have the happy story that your book, The Carrying, did win the National Book Critics Circle Award. So you also could talk about what that was like. And then on top of all of this, you've been a judge. Um, so I don't know. I, I would. Are you willing to to talk a little bit about what it felt like to be nominated? And not win? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Um, I actually, I find it fascinating as well. It's nothing that I would have entertained in my life if it hadn't have happened to me. Mm. Um, to be honest, I wasn't even that aware of awards. When I lived in New York, like, I, you know, you read books. I don't know. There wasn't a huge, uh, I just didn't really know about them that much. Um, and... When I found out that I was longlisted for the National Book Award in 2015, my book, it was actually the release date of my book. It was September 15th. And um, so I had had the copy in my hands. And that is also, (laughs) I should say, two weeks earlier when the copies arrived, it was maybe one of my first and worst panic attacks Mm. uh, in a long time. And I remember thinking, I wrote all my secrets and put them in a book. And what have I done? Like, what have I done? And Bright Dead Things was my most personal, my most, uh, the speaker is me. (laughs) Uh, And it's really narrative in a way that I wasn't sure would be sort of acceptable, I guess, in the current poetry mood of the world. Um, And then I calmed myself out of my panic attack by saying, well, it's a poetry book, Mm. so no one will read it. (laughs) And I really, like, that's how I got back on my feet and was like, okay. I also, that day, stopped drinking coffee for almost four years. Wow. Um, I just started drinking it again. Like, I can have a cup, you know? But so to sort of calm myself by saying no one will read it and then sitting in the kitchen and I was actually looking at the law. I was excited for the announcements, but I was also really excited because I had a lot of friends that had books out. So Mm -hmm. I was looking for the list primarily for Ross Gay's book Uh because Ross is a good friend. So I was like, okay, I wonder if Ross will make this list. <laughs> um, and I'm reading it, and I see Terrence's name, and I like shout to my husband. I'm like, yes! And I'm going through it, and I'm like, Ross is on it! And then I just got quiet. <laughs> and my husband is like, what? What? And I just, I couldn't speak. And I, I was looking on my phone, and I showed him my, the phone. And he couldn't, like, we were both like, it was nothing I expected. It like, I, I mean, I really, it's not, I mean, I, it's my fourth book. Mm-hmm. My other three, nothing happened. You know, I, it, it was just completely, completely, um, do people say the word flabbergasted anymore? It's a great word. I was flabbergasted. Mm. Um, yeah. And then, of course, with that came the realization that all those secrets would be read. Mm. So it was a very interesting experience because it suddenly felt like, oh, well, I know for myself that I I look at the long list and I buy those books 
And I think, okay, well, you know, these made it to the top of 200 or 300 books. And, you know, I, I, I want to see what the judges thought. Um, and having been a judge in 2013, um, you know, I was aware of that process. And so, yeah, no, it was really, and then I told Lucas, you know, cause then of course the long list gets cut down and he said, well, you know, what are you thinking? And I looked at him and I said, because I had been to the party once as a judge and I said, <laughs> where we met yeah. and I said, um, I just want to go to the party. <laughs> to the party uh and so that call when I found out I was a finalist was amazing and uh I was in I was on Moon Mountain in my uh, apartment in Sonoma and um you know you can't tell anyone you actually find out the night before oh and you can't tell anyone because it gets released on the radio Mm -hmm. and I'm it might work differently every year, but, um, and I had a reading that night in San Francisco and I had to do the reading and kind of keep this energy inside. Wow. Uh, and then of course, you know, going was just one of the highlights of my life. And, uh, one of the biggest things that I loved was Adrian Manteca, who, uh, as when I was a judge, we had made him a finalist mm. and I loved his book, mm. Big Smoke. Um, if you don't have it, listeners, you should buy it immediately. Um, but Adrian had told, had given me the advice to invite everyone you want to invite. Mm. It's just such a highlight of your life. Mm. Invite them. And so I did. And, you know, I said, I couldn't, I can't pay for you, (laughs) but if you can get there, Uh like, let's do it. So I had, you know, my entire family with me. Wow. Um, which was really amazing and wonderful. Um, although, of course, when another name gets called, in this case, the beautiful and wonderful Robin Cost Lewis, who I just adore, mm-hmm. um, I was okay and my family wasn't. <laughs> Um, and they were sure I was going to win, Uh you know, and I think partly they were sure because they showed up, Yeah, (laughs) you know, and, uh, my friends, Trish Harnitow and Heather Grossman, who Mm -hmm. you met last night at the Mm -hmm. reading and the dinner afterwards, um, Jason Schneiderman, uh, they were there, Mm -hmm. uh, my husband, my father, my stepfather, uh, my mom, you know, I mean, it was... You know, my friends Diana and Jeff, who, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was all of my love, my, my, my loves, my hearts. And I think they were, like, their jaws dropped. Like, they uh-huh. couldn't, but they were like, how is this possible? You know, and I was like, this is, you know, she, she wrote a, an amazing book, and it deserves to win. And I was okay, and I think that was an interesting experience, was that I loved that I brought everyone, because mm. we, sh- we it's a shared story for us. But I did have a moment where... I thought, oh no, now I have to comfort them because they were shocked. Uh huh. <laughs> Which, of course, is, you know, as poets, we're not shocked. We're like, yeah, it makes sense. Right. You know, right. <laughs> we're used, as poets, we're used to losing. <laughs> Our life is rejection. Like, that is what we deal with. So yep. we kind of have that skin that is just like, like I said, I just wanted to come to the party, you mm-hmm. know? Um, 
so yeah, so that was an interesting experience and it was also interesting comforting your loved ones. Yeah. You know, um, my husband who never, I mean, he's the nicest, calmest, sweetest man, mm. um, was angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was surprised. I, he was legitimately angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, of course, we shook it off and we all went to the after party and it was great. Mm-hmm. But it was just in that moment, there was like, oh, actually, their emotions are much stronger than mine right now. <laughs> did that sort of help you? Because... I think it, it did. Yeah. Because you switch a little bit into caretaker mode. Right. Right? And uh, so you're immediately like, okay, well, let me just soothe these people that I love and mm-hmm. focus on them. And so, you know, in my mind, there wasn't like a, you know, a heartache or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so then did you invite them to the National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, ceremony for the same book? Um, cause that comes, that comes in March, spring. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I did it. Uh huh. Yeah. And I think partly it was sort of a, a self preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an interesting you know, that was an, an interesting experience as well because I thought, you know, there's a lot, people tell you all these things, right? And right. that's the other hard part is that no one knows, but people will say, oh, you know, you didn't win the National Book Award, so you're definitely going to win um, the National Book Critics Circle Award because Bright Dead Things has, you know, done this and this and this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there was... I think I went in with maybe more of an expectation, mm-hmm. uh, which was odd because that's actually not like me. But I think that people prepared me in this way that was maybe not as helpful as you want. Um, and of course, Ross won. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his acceptance speech was one of my favorite speeches. And yeah. I that book is you know, a life changer (laughs) and, um, the catalog of unabashed gratitude. Um, yeah. So, I mean, watching, you know, someone that you admire and respect and have worked in tandem with through the years, uh, win is, was a delight. Right. Um, it, (laughs) the year that I was nominated, um, my really close friend, Doug Powell was nominated and, I think I was I was utterly convinced that he would win and wanted him to win. It was not, you know, I mean, I think, of course I wanted to win. And I also felt, at, I felt like I'm never going to write another book again. So this is my one chance to win. That did not turn out to be true. But that's very much how I felt at that point in my life with that book. But I felt that Doug's book was better than mine and um he's a better poet than I am and uh I love him with all my heart and so I was very focused on that and then when he also didn't win I was like what I don't understand um and I so it was a little bit like the situation you described I bet like for your parents and your family where I I had an idea that I knew what was going to happen yeah um, which is so weird, right? Yeah. Like, why do we ever think we can predict the future? Never. I mean, you know, I read a horoscope, like, it's going to happen. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, it's st- I still do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's wrong with me, but, uh, 
But yeah, I think um, someone asked me one time, you know, what was the hardest award to lose? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is funny because when you were, I mean, really, it, it, it's a cliche, but that idea of like it's an honor to be nominated, like the fact that my book was on these lists, like you have to understand that that has, when it's your fourth book and you've, the three have never been on anything. Right. You just, it's so unexpected. And so for it to appear and appear, like it really was remarkable to me and a, a, a very big surprise. Um, but to be blunt, the hardest one to lose was the one that came with $100,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because as poets, like, I mean, we're good hustlers. Like, yeah. we hustle. You know, how do we make a living? Like, we hustle. And um, that would have been, I mean, just to be honest, of course, like, the one that came with the cash prize would yeah. have been the one to win. <laughs> yeah, and I, I appreciate your bluntness. And I think it's like important to talk about this stuff because, so, you know, for people who don't know, the National Book Award, is there's no money. No, the National Book Award is $10,000. Oh, there. Okay, so sorry. I see. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I know the National Book Critics Circle Award is no money. Right. And so the National Book Award is $10,000, which apparently I didn't know. Um, and the Kingsley Tufts is the is the 100000 one. And there are some other big ones, but most of the other big ones, um, like the big cash ones, um, you don't really know. You just, you just, I think, there's not like f- a long list and finalists and stuff like that, like some well, of these lifetime awards. There's the Penn Jean Stein Award, uh-huh. which the Caring was nominated for. Mm. And that's for the top five books of the year mm. from Penn. And um, that one also, I believe, is $50,000. Uh-huh. Um, I was nominated for that. And that was, an, you know, it's just funny because it's that weird moment when um, I have this fabulous friend, Dan Walensky, who uh, teaches psychology and is just one of the most grounded people I know. And one of the things that... He, we talked about the other day on the phone was he was meditating and he was like, I'm just trying to focus on things. And I was like, well, what, what is it that you're meditating about now? And he was like, money, <laughs> I would like some more money. And I like laughed so hard because I thought, oh, like, aren't we supposed to like talk, like wish for world peace and the planet to heal itself and the end of war, you know? And it, it was kind of wonderful that, that just, I don't know. I feel like it was a confession, right? Yeah. To be like, yeah, money would be nice. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know where this, you know, like when I was a graduate student at Iowa, nobody wanted to talk about publication and definitely nobody wanted to talk about money or how anybody was supposed to make a living. And, you know, I really think that there is this kind of sense that especially poets, are not supposed to somehow be interested in making a living, but then how do you possibly write? And I think that this is really, I'm hoping that this is 
kind of becoming more passe and, and, you know, the taboos around talking about money and, you know, how people actually make their living and are sort of uh, ending. I think there's also something that has to do with ambition and particularly female ambition um, and, you know, kind of the way that we're taught not to say like, yeah, I wanted the prize or I wanted the money or I wanted the means to keep making art, um, you know, or living the life that I want to live, whatever that means to you, and to not be embarrassed about that. And all these other things can also be true, that we love our friends, that we are happy when someone else wins, that, you know, we are not really living lives that are primarily about going after the most amount of money possible. Otherwise, we really, really chose the wrong thing. But, you know, I, I feel really frustrated at the way in which, you know, people don't talk about this stuff. I, I, I feel equally frustrated. And I also feel one of the things that I have done because I travel and speak often to like small groups of graduate students, like I've invited and then they're like, oh, just give a Q&A or whatever. And um, I... I am very open about money. I'm open about my finances. And I feel like I want to be because I was raised in that same sort of era where when I went to NYU, no one really talked about it. I mean, luckily, New York, people talk about money. Mm-hmm. So there is that sort of like, well, how are you getting by? And what are you doing? And, how, you know, you can I have that job? You know, we have these discussions, uh, which is sort of the blessing of the East Coast on some ways. But uh, but in the graduate school, that was not discussed. It wasn't, no one really talked about what was next or it was almost like, well, we know you don't make a living at poetry. So, you know, do something else. But no one ever said that. I mean, I always say, like, you know, they always, the sort of quote is, um, you know, do what you love and the money will follow, Mm -hmm. right? I think for poetry, it's like, do what you love and also get another job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that's something that, I mean, I like to talk about the jobs I've had. I like to talk about work because I think making a living and making a life need to be discussed for artists like all the time. I think it also is because I, you know, was raised by an artist and so that makes a big difference. So I think being raised by an artist and seeing how that works and what it is to make things and put them into the world and then also make a living and pay your rent and get your health insurance and I don't know, I think that's important. Yeah, it, your mo- your mother is a painter. Correct. Um, yeah, and I also was raised by uh, in, by a businessman and an artist, and so that was a really interesting kind of. I was getting different messages um, from both of them. Let's go back for a second because it happened even last night at dinner. I don't remember if it was uh, Matt Rohr or or who, but somebody asked you like, um, so. And I can't remember the way that the question was phrased because it was it's like slightly an awkward question to ask someone else. And yet we both feel that this is a very important question. So someone asked you basically like, so you don't teach full time. So you write freelance. So, you you know, and you uh, came back very forthright and said, you know, right now you're making your living primarily from doing readings and traveling around. And that 
I I believe is a kind of new thing for poets. I don't I don't think that was a way that anybody was able to support themselves until relatively recently. Yeah, I mean it wasn't really a model that we saw, no. I don't think. Um yeah, I mean I've supported myself with readings and you know some freelance writing. Um, but less and less so, but primarily with readings as maybe 80% of my income for, you know, I also teach in a low res program. I want to say since 2015. So, um, for the last four years. Do you think that, um, being nominated for the National Book Award and National Book Critics Circle Award and Kingsley Tufts and then winning the National Book Critics Circle Award... Uh, even though you didn't win the cash associated with some of those, that that came back to you um, in speaking fees? Like, is that, or um, no? Yeah. You know, the awards definitely, I think, helped give it a bigger platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I mean, this is, I don't want this to sound egotistical, but it's really about, Bright Dead Things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bright Dead Things had it. It's about that book. Yeah. It it had a life that shifted into. I think it's a book that people give people who don't read poems, mm. and I think that, in and of itself, brought me to a wider recognition, and I think I was partly writing for the first time for people who didn't read, or write poems. Um, and I wanted to know what it was to, to really write for my loved ones who aren't writers, Mm -hmm. you know, or are writers, but they don't write poetry or it's not like they read like we do, you know, 10 books a week, you know, (laughs) this is it. I wanted to write for people who were, you know, complicated people living in the world and didn't necessarily think about line breaks on a daily basis. Yeah. And, um, and I think that book reached people in a way that I didn't expect. Um, and I think that is the book that gave me that platform. And I think the awards definitely widened the readership for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm super grateful for them, but I also think the work itself, uh, opened something up that, it was a door that I wasn't even ready to go through, but it shoved me through and here I am. (laughs) I want to talk about that nervousness um, that you felt when Bright Dead Things came out, Um, but maybe would you read something from Bright Dead Things? Sure. Yeah. Great. So everyone can share. And I also wanted to say as you're, as you're finding uh, whichever poem you want to read that uh, because it's probably hard for you to say this, the other reason people invite you to speak is you're a great speaker. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just have spent the last few weeks looking at uh, videos of you giving craft talks and readings and, um, you know, yeah, you're an incredibly compelling speaker, reader of your own work, um, uh, and um, someone who who is able to talk about poetry both to poets and to a general audience of people who might not ordinarily 
uh, read poetry or, you know, aren't thinking about line breaks. So the book reached them, but it's, it's not coincidental. It's you, you are reaching um, people too. I really appreciate that. Um, I really believe in the duende of performance. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's a reason when Lorca talks about Wendy that he talks about it in the performance, the flamenco dancer, you know, um, the tango artist, the the singer. Um, and he talks about theater and he talks about poetry. But really when he talks about Duende, he's talking about the performance of it. Mm. And I feel like we end up talking about it on the page, but I don't even know if Duende does actually happen on the page at all. Duende happens in the room, Mm -hmm. you know? And that to me is something I take very seriously. And, you know, it, it, does it help that I have a degree in theater? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, um, it helps that I have a lot of friends that are performers and I get to see them on stage and do amazing things. And I think a lot about the body and the body is instrument, um, the voice is instrument, the ear as the first um, discovery of the poem versus the eye, um, E-Y-E. <laughs> um, so I, I bring a lot to a reading, but not in the sense of because I want to perform it, but because I want to reach for a clarity and to reach for a, um, a meaning, right? A connection Mm -hmm. to reach for a connection. I didn't write poetry for it not to reach someone. Um, and I think it's bizarre that we sometimes pretend that we do. Well, I think this is very connected, actually, to our conversation about money, because I I also think that there was this kind of idea that I was raised with, and certainly in college and graduate school, was really reiterated over and over again, which was sort of like, all you have is the page, and you know, there should be nothing, there should be no biography of the of the poet, there should be no uh, cultural context um, of the poet or of the moment that that matters or that you might need or that might help enrich the poem off the page, because it was it was kind of the page was what mattered. And absolutely, um, for the most part, until recently, if someone said that you were performative, it was an insult, or at least it was pejorative, you know, it was really, and, and I had so many experiences um, where after a reading, someone would come up to me and say, you're such a good reader. But it was a very, uh, it, it was like a compliment that had a knife inside it, which was like, your work isn't that interesting, but you're good at reading it. And I know that that um, poets of color and particularly women of color get this comment about being good performers and being good readers um, in a way that it is absolutely racialized and um, and 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 very pejorative, um, and so you know to kind of 
to think about this, it's I, I have found it very difficult to rewrite my ideas about um, performance um, within the poetry world and push back against that. And absolutely for me, it is about, as you just said, connection and and rethinking, you know, this kind of more traditional poetry reading, or as my father says, when you declaim your poems, right? Um, where I remember, you know, I'd go to a poetry reading and there would be the poet and they would be mumbling and they wouldn't make eye contact with the audience. And they would, it was sort of like they, they it was like they didn't even know they were reading and what should they read and shuffling through the book and, you know, not really knowing. And half the poems were like in a language that, you know, it was like Latin was a lot of Latin and French and, you know, um, and it was all about like, I found a book of circus moves in the attic and you know I I don't know I mean I think some of the the poets that I'm remembering were very genuinely quite shy awkward as we both know there are a lot of poets who you know social interactions might not be the the thing that is they're most successful at but then there was also kind of like a like a, a this was an expectation of how one would give a genuine poetry reading, mumbling and and I don't know if I, I just had this memory of like um for a while Robin Beth Sher, who was friends with Minnie Driver, was offering um basically acting lessons to poets who so that they could get better at reading their poems. And I remember when I first heard about that, thinking like, oh, that's so brave to admit <laughs> that you want to be good at reading your poems. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thrilled like that we are hopefully really moving away from that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think one of the biggest divides that was present when you and I were coming of age in the poetry world um, was this sort of page versus stage. Right. Right. Um, and I mean, the poetry readings I most remember were at the Bowery Poetry Club and the New Yorkian. Mm -hmm. That was for me poetry. Um, I don't remember the poetry readings where it felt like people just got up there and apologized mm -hmm. um, or were embarrassed that they wrote something. Um, and so for me, my experience was like, no, I, this is a poetry reading, right? Um, but did you feel like when you read your work with as much power and presence and connection as you could, that there was a sort of a snake eye on you? Like, what do you think you are a spoken word poet? You know, are you, are you trying to like do something, you know, over there? Yeah. I think that there's still a judgment on poetry that entertains mm -hmm. poetry that connects poetry that admits there's a reader. Um, I will say that I, in reviews, one of the things that I never get called uh, is smart. Hmm. Um, and I think that's fascinating to me. Uh, and, you know, that that is, you know, one of the things that I tried to prove very hard in my 
MFA days was I just wanted to be smart mm-hmm. and I wanted to be seen as smart. And I think with Bright Dead Things, I just stopped trying to be smart. And I was realizing that I wasn't writing for those people anymore. I was writing for my friends and my loved ones. And here's the thing. They know I'm smart. (laughs) 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 And I don't have to prove anything to them. Yeah. And so that that was the shift for me was I let the idea of trying to prove someone that I was an intellectual person um, go. I let it go. Mm -hmm. And it's been a great relief for me. Yeah. (laughs) That's so interesting. I don't think I've ever been called smart in a review either. That's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay, read. Oh, yes. All right. So I'll just read the first poem from Bright Dead Things. How to Triumph Like a Girl. I like the lady horses best. How they make it all look easy. Like running 40 miles per hour is as fun as taking a nap or grass. I like their lady horse swagger after winning. Ears up, girls. Ears up. But mainly, let's be honest, I like that they're ladies. As if this big, dangerous animal is also a part of me. That somewhere inside the delicate skin of my body, their pumps an eight pound female horse heart, giant with power, heavy with blood. Don't you want to believe it? Don't you want to lift my shirt and see the huge, beating, genius machine that thinks, no, it knows it's going to come in first? Thank you. Um, so let's go back just for a second. This is a totally selfish line of questioning at this point. <laughs> you know, so you said that when Bright Dead Things first came out, um, it was a very anxious experience for you. And you comforted yourself with the idea that nobody was going to read it. Mm-hmm. And this was blown out of the water very quickly because, first of all, the judges had clearly read it, um, but then more people were going to read it. So I, I so my book came out last, uh, I guess, uh, Tuesday. So congratulations. Thank you. Although it's like <laughs> every time someone says congratulations to me, I feel horrible. <laughs> I just, I'm very, very surprised at, uh, how terrible I feel right now. Um, Now that you are several years out from this experience, do you have any wisdom about, you know, why the, why Bright Dead Things, you know, you feel like you, you felt like it was like all of your secrets, Mm -hmm. um, which is very present for me as well. So how did you get over it? If you did, Do you have any kind of wisdom looking back on that moment? Was there anything useful to you in, you know, how complicated that experience was? Um, And has it, and was it different with the carrying? You know, um, that's very interesting for me to hear about your experience because I think that even though I was fearful and terrified of 
holding bright dead things in my hand. Like I literally, I can't, I mean, the panic attack lasted about four hours. Like I really thought, like I said, I mean, I stopped drinking coffee for four years. That's how bad it was. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, I thought, oh, I'm having a heart attack. You know, that sort of moment where you're like, okay, do I go to the hospital? I know it's a panic attack. I've had these before. I haven't had them in a long time, but you know, that's talking yourself down. Um, And the thing that has saved me and, you know, it, it saves me over and over and over again. It saves me this morning. It saves me today in this moment is just to think about how freaking lucky I am to do this Mm. and how many people don't get to write books Mm -hmm. and how many people don't get to write books because they're working nonstop and they don't have the time. Uh, How many people don't get to write books because no one is giving them a chance and no one is giving them a voice. Um, And so I lean towards gratitude constantly. And every time I am presented with that anxiety and fear, I think, oh my God, look what I get to do. Mm. Look how I get to spend my life talking and reading and discussing poetry that I love, other people's poems, and then I get to make my own poems? Like, what? That's a dream life. Sure, does it have anxiety and fear and moments of complicated uh, wrestling with the world? Yeah, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that's... I think that is the biggest lesson came was that that is what saved me from that panic attack that day. And that is what has saved me over and over and over again is being just really, really aware of how lucky I am. Mm. Can you, this is, I'm so greedy. Look at me. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for saying that. It's really, really helpful to hear. And can you go even further and say, what it is about this life and getting to make poems and what is it about uh, the life of a poet that you really love? It's the attention of what, like, it's the act of attention Mm -hmm. that I get to spend my life attending to the world. Mm -hmm. The deep observation, the looking, the seeing, the hearing, the feeling... I get to live my life in deep attention to the world. That's the biggest gift. Mm-hmm. I get to pay attention. I get to be present. I get to feel things, <laughs> even when they're terrible. And I get to notice things. And in that noticing, I am reminded again and again of the fact that I am in a body that is alive and that will someday die. And so that this is this moment I get to pay attention to. And that's all I have is this moment. Mm. And that is the biggest gift is that it keeps bringing me back to that, to paying attention. You know, so right before you came, I watched your acceptance speech for the National Book Critics Circle Award for the Carrying. And it's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, You thank women. You thank the women who were nominated. You thank the women who are writing. You thank 
um, the mothers and you thank women who were not mothers, who maybe never wanted to be mothers. And you end on a, on a just a beautiful um, note of all of the things that you're grateful for and most importantly, your life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is partly, I mean, there's so many things that I, that I was thinking about last night as you were reading and thinking about while reading your book. Um, you know, one of them is just the moment where, you know, both of us in different ways jokingly said, like, I'm the speaker. (laughs) (laughs) But there, you know, and and I think that there has been a long history of ways in which um, women who are the subject of their own work uh, have been kind of punished for that, Um, even if audience members and readers have really responded very positively to that. So like more traditional critics and, you know, have been from Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath onward, quite disturbed by this, you know, uh, this proximity between the poet and the speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that it is connected to um, what you're talking about, about the poetry coming out of a life of paying attention to life, to language, of course, but language as part of life, you right. know, to the body, to the natural world, to um, infertility treatments, to uh, meetings with friends, to love, to, you know, all of these things. And that you can't really separate um, the poetry from your life. You can't separate your gratitude for the writing life from your life. Um, and that all of these are really, really fundamentally bound up with being a mortal being. Um, and I think, I think that's, I don't know, somehow that gets lost for a lot of people in making the art, you know, that the art is, um, separate or it's supposed to be separate and in some kind of way that maybe was once thought of as protective Mm. um i mean can we go back to secrets just for a minute um because certainly the carrying has these very personal um poems it's by far my most personal book yeah but i don't feel that you're revealing secrets and mm. I did feel that way in Bright Dead Things mm. differently. I don't know if that makes any sense to you mm. or resonates with you. But you had, you specifically said with Bright Dead Things, like I felt like my secrets were out in the world. And, and the carrying, which uh, is very, very personal and speaks of things that people do not usually speak about in public. Um, I guess partly I feel that you are not embarrassed and maybe mm. that's the difference somehow between a secret and the personal. Mm. I don't know. Do you feel that way or, or am I mis, misreading? I don't know. They both feel like books of secrets to uh-huh. me. Um, but I do think that I there's something in Bright Dead Things where I was shifting. Mm. I was going through a life shift. I was going through an art shift. Um, And a lot of it was 
experiencing the death of my stepmother and just really being close to our mortality mm. and really paying attention to what it is to live this life. And that shift is something that happened in Bright Dead Things and that it, it, it's a fundamental shift. Like when people say, oh, the carrying is very similar to Bright Dead Things, it's, I feel like they're, they're in conversation. And I, I'm like, I think my work will all, like that, that is going to keep happening um, because these are the questions of my life. Mm -hmm. Those aren't going to change. You know, my list of dead is going to grow longer, you know, but, but the questions are going to be the same. Um, and the answer to every question is always because we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so I feel like this is that, I think there, what you might be sensing in the difference between the books is that the carrying is unapologetic. Mm -hmm. And I think that Bright Dead Things, there's a little, maybe the, the footing is a little more unsure of itself. Mm. And so it feels maybe a little more, oh, like, am I supposed to say this? Whereas the caring is a little bit more, I'm going to say this. Mm -hmm. And there's also an interesting thing that happened, which is, you know, I wrote, I would say maybe half or maybe 30% of the book, not for a reader, not to get published, not to send out. Mm -hmm. And it's only because I had to work through it. Um, so I wrote about it because that's how I process, um, like many of us. And um, in the writing of the work, I was finding a way to sort of survive. And I had to make a decision about my life before I published the poems. Mm. And the biggest decision was not to have, not to keep trying to have a child, mm -hmm. not to continue with fertility treatments. Um, and that shift was giant, but it was also the only way that I could have published the book. Hmm. If I was still trying, this book wouldn't exist. It would exist in its poems, but it would not be in the world. Um, I needed to have some clarity and some sense of safety in my own being in the world as a child-free person. Mm. I like saying child-free. It's like hands-free. Yeah. Um, and um, to embrace that and to be aware that what I make and put into the world is not going to be a human being, but it is going to be a living thing. And that living thing is poetry. Mm. And if you had published, uh, the carrying before having come to that, it would have just been too vulnerable or it would have been too. Well, here's the thing. So the very, f one of the very first readings I gave from the carrying, uh, I, you know, didn't make any introduction for it. I just sort of read from it. And it, I had a wonderfully long book line. There was about 50 people in the book line. And about 25 of those people were women who came up and gave me advice about how to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And 
I thought, oh, this is why. Like, I wasn't even quite sure why I had to make those decisions before I published the book, but that was why. Yeah. Um, you know, I still get people coming up to me uh, telling me about adoption, mm. um, w- you know, which is fine, but it, it is this interesting thing to me. Um, and so I think I needed to have that done so that I could say, no, 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 I'm fine. We're mm, done. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes so much sense to me. Um, when I used to read from Museum of Accidents, no matter what I read, I would say half the people just wanted to tell me about the miscarriages that they'd had. That was really important to me. And you can see why. I mean, having that many women come up and say these things, uh, and, you know, it happens in casual conversation, you know, where people will say like, oh, are you guys, do you guys have kids? And, oh, and then I often get the response, oh, I'm sure it'll work out or I'm sure. And I, and I, so I'm very clear and say, no, this is a conscious decision, you know, which is funny because my husband is like, well, no, we tried and then we couldn't. Uh And I am like, no, we tried and then we stopped trying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I think I like the power of that. I liked taking the power back and being like, no, we decided not to have children. And so he's like, but not really. Like the universe kind of decided for us. I'm like, no, we decided. Um, But that's a powerful, that's a place of power. And if we are careful with how language influences our brain, our minds, our bodies, um, our hearts, that, you know, that to me is not a lie. It's just in ownership. And so I like to say that we stopped trying purposefully. Yeah, well, and that's, and we did, and that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 uh, I love women, and I love my sisterhood, and um, I love that that more and more I'm around women, either cl- women close to me or strangers who feel emboldened to tell me things about their bodies and about my body, but I find it remarkably terrible how invested people are about other people's life choices and how I mean it's really it's really awful and there is so much like verbal violence between women around issues of you know having a child not having a child having more than one child having one child um being married, getting divorced, um, being monogamous, being non-monogamous, working, not working, what kind of work you do, whether you send your child to daycare or this or that, living in a city, living outside a city. Why? All my choices seem suspect and, 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 you know, fucked up and confusing, and I'm full of doubt and ambivalence. So it would not really occur to me to tell someone else how to be happy because I have no idea. And yet so many people really have an idea about how other people should live their lives. And I think it's particularly, I don't know. I don't know what men are like when they're just with other men because I'm not in those circles. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't get this thing. I mean, it, it, it feels, it 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 is not supportive, mm-hmm. to say the least. Yeah, um, yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think there's also a lot of comparing 
and sort of making sure that other people have the same experience that people have had. Yeah. And I don't, like, that's not life. Like, none of us, none of us have had the same experience except the fact that we're going to die, but we're all going to do it in a different way. Um, I, so I, I'm always, I, you know, I don't understand that. <laughs> I mean, the only way I can kind of understand it is that it's sort of like the poetry community in the sense that there's such a scarcity of resources or a perceived scarcity of resources that, um, amongst women, um, and, and so much pressure on, um, some of the choices that women can make. And of course, that many women don't have choices. And, and, and so I guess maybe it comes out of that insecurity, anxiety, um, kind of thwarted ambition, uh, need to justify one's choices that comes out as um, some sort of, you know, idea of what someone else should do mm-hmm. because it, I guess it makes a person feel like, you know, they've they've chosen well. Can you read from The Carrying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was hoping you might read, um, I mean, you can, I won't, you know, you can read this and something else, but I, we were talking about um, being unapologetic and I was kind of hoping um, you would read Mastering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love how unapologetic your work is. I feel like it's really important to me. Um, I really appreciate that. I think that um, it's what I love in other people's work, right, is that when there there's an honesty that is mixed with the friction of language, right? And like the muscularity of musical uh, uh, language, you know? And then when they're also saying something that is just so weird, mm-hmm. right? Like I think <laughs> that wonderful moment when we're just like, we're really weird. <laughs> like life is really weird. My brain is really weird. You know? I Like... Th- I think just admitting to that is something I find very important. I will say about this poem that it there was a publisher that was interested in publishing it in a magazine, um, and they weren't going to publish it unless I fixed the ending to be less mean. Mm-hmm. And I pulled it. Good job. And I said, I, I would actually just prefer to end our conversation. Mastering. I'm in Texas at a bar with a friend who doesn't drink anymore, and I've missed him. We order food and share and talk aging bodies and Mexico and how the mind goes mad. We talk about a friend who's going blind, the pressure on his brain. How we admire his fierce allegiance to the world, his unflagging wail into the abyss. I like being at this bar with a man I admire but don't love, don't need to fleece for affection. It makes me feel all grown up, like I should get a good job chip too. We talk about marriage and the tender skin of the other. I lay out the plans for my upcoming wedding, A mountain named after the moon blooms in my hair, my beloved. 
We've known each other almost 15 years, my friend, with eyes the color of a clear cenote. I trust him. He leans in, tells me the real miracle, more than marriage, the thing that makes you believe there might be a God after all, is the making of a child. He stares at me, but I'm not there anymore. I don't say we've tried a long time, been sad, been happy, that perhaps the only thing I can make is love and art. I want to tell him that's enough, isn't it? Isn't love that doesn't result in a seed, a needy body, another suckling animal still love? Isn't that supernatural? Screw your God. He's showing me a photo now of his child, and I'm unfolding and folding the napkin. He's pointing out how amazing his child is. I order a drink because I can, and maybe because he can't. He retreats in his seat. I take a long sip and really look into his eyes. I want him to notice what he said, how a woman might feel agony, emptiness, how he's lucky it's me he said it to because I won't vaporize him. I sip again. I want him to see how much pleasure I can handle. My tongue a tuning fork, how mute and mirror I can be. Even with these ordinary wonders he can't see swirling around us. I love this poem so much, and and I'm so glad that you did not take out um, the anger or the ending, Um, you know, because I I think it's, and and I'm I I wish I could ask the editor why that felt important. Um, Do you know? Did did Um, you know it? It was through the assistant or whatever. So this is sort of you know what the woman who was. Uh, offering what the editor asked, that it felt like it was a little over the top in the anger for a man who was just showing pictures of his child. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like that's such a failure to understand what the poem is, um, who the speaker is. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was like, we're done here. Right. And and I also feel like it, it misses, um, without the anger, it misses something really important. And I'm not trying to turn anger into kindness at all, because anger can stay anger. And it's really important that, that anger, you know, that, that especially women, um, but that, that we are allowed to express our anger, to write our anger, to, you know, to feel our anger. But, you know, this moment where you say, um, I want him to notice what he said, how a woman might feel agony, emptiness, how he's lucky it's me he said it to. I mean, okay, within the poem, he's lucky because you don't vaporize him, but he's also lucky because you told him. He's, the, the poem says it. And I feel like um, to not recognize that gift, which is which is really just a gift because what it what it means to care about someone enough or to stay with someone long enough, even in the poem, um, even if you didn't say to him at that moment, this is how you're making me feel, um, is the difference between a relationship and, you know, someone who bumps you on the subway and, you know, you just 
complain about them later, um, a friendship that's worth um, being seen. And I feel like that's also part of writing poems that are maybe too personal, that are maybe too angry, that are that maybe reveal secrets, um, because it's about staying with the reader, letting the reader see really the truth of, you know, who you are and your feelings, um, not vaporizing them, um, but almost. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I appreciate those comments about the poem because I, uh, for me, it was an important poem for, for me to write because there was a little sort of cruelty in the moment of ordering the drink, Mm -hmm. um, when I usually wouldn't. And I, I made a point of it. And I also think that there, what, what I experienced in writing of the poem was also the confession of my own pettiness that I wanted to hurt him in some way. Yeah. And I think if I edited that out, the poem actually doesn't take into account like my own self-incrimination in the poem which is that rage made me want to to do something. And what it wanted me to do was to drink in front of an alcoholic. Right. And show him how good a drink was. I mean, that's a cruel thing to do. And if I had edited that out, then I'm not incriminating myself in that act and what hurt does and how when we are hurt, we want to hurt another person. Like that is like the, one of the great mysteries of the world. Why do we do that? Why, when someone calls me a name, do I want to call them a name? And that's, that is the question of the poem. And I think editing that out would have been untrue to the impulse of the poem in the first place. Um, I will also say that um, I sent this poem to my friend and I feel very, uh, you know, my ethics in writing is that I really feel like if I write about another body that I have to send it to them and mm. ask permission to write it mm. um, or to publish it, right? I've already written it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I sent it to him and said, you know, I'm interested in publishing this poem, but I think some people will know it's you. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be, even though I don't say your name, and I just, I want you to have it and I want your permission to put it out into the world. And, you know, he wrote back the most generous email. And what he said to me was also that he was having some trouble in his life. Mm -hmm. And so when he was focusing on his child, what he was doing was trying to take the focus off the other thing we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And it really deepened our friendship and that email exchange and the poem became this wonderful connection. And it meant a lot to me. So I think in asking that permission from him, he was like, of course, publish it, do whatever you want with it. But also you should know this. And I thought, oh, and then I was like, oh, and you should also know this. And he's like, I didn't know you were going through that. And I didn't know you were going through this. And it, you know, again, it was, it was a doorway and I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Um, Have you ever, this is a big issue in my life. 
that we talk about on the podcast like every single time, whether explicitly or implicitly. But have you ever sent one of your poems to someone you wrote about and they were like, yeah, don't publish that or please change this and and have you complied? Um, I have made changes Mm -hmm. to poems based on not hurting the heart of someone else. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there are poems that I won't publish that may hurt someone else. Um, You know, making art is a great gift, and I love what I do, but I value my personal relationships more than the poems. And um, that's me. I think it's personal for every other artist. Um, For me... Like, okay, for a, a, a real example, well, this poem, <laughs> but also the the poem in the book that is specifically about my mother mm-hmm. um, and the reason I don't have any tattoos um, called The Real Reason. Um, that deals specifically with the fact that she's covered with scars. Mm-hmm. Now, if you met my mother, you would not know that because none of them are on her face or her hands. And it's not something that she would, you know, she's not embarrassed by it, but she is scarred all over her body. And I would not have published that poem if she didn't give me permission. I sent that poem to her and she was okay with it. And when I was on uh, NPR... They asked me about that poem. I called her immediately afterwards and said, they asked me about to read this poem and they talked to me about it. Is it okay? Mm. I know you've already given me permission for the poem, but is it okay for me to have actually kind of gone into your accident and what happened? And um, she was like, yes, yes, yes. But if she had said no, I would have called the, the, the person at the radio and said, you need to edit that out. You know, she's very much one of the most important people in my life and her heart means more to me than anything I would publish. Mm-hmm. You want to read that poem? <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a beautiful poem. And I, and you know, I, I, uh, I was thinking about this poem so much. Um, yeah. For, for reasons, uh, because I, you know, I did write about my mother, um, and she did not want me to, mm-hmm. and I did anyway, and it didn't didn't end well. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the writing for us, you know, without leaning into it too much, I think that it can be healing, and it can be therapy, and we need it. Mm-hmm. And I think often we don't talk about that in MFA <laughs> schools, right? We don't talk about the fact that we need to write these things to save ourselves. Um, and so often when I'm talking about permission, that's important to me. I will say I'm never against writing it. Right. It's putting it into the world. That's different. Um, and that's me because I, you know, it, I am very... I think that she would have also done the same thing for me about like my portrait or, you know, if she painted me, if, you know, and so I, I feel like I, it's a dual 
responsibility we have to each other. Um, so the reason this poem came to be mm-hmm. is that there's a poem in Bright Dead Things about why I don't have any tattoos. And I like the poem. I'm not, this isn't like a, <laughs> you know, a moment where I'm like, oh, I hate that poem. But I, in the poem, there's sort of this this moment at the end where I say the reason I don't have any tattoos really is like my um, my words or my tattoos, right? This sort of moment of that the poetry is my unstoppable ink, and that's how it ends. Um, side note: I used to joke that the reason I don't have tattoos is um, because I have student loans, and I don't need anything more permanent than that. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Shout out NYU. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I really thought about that, you know, and I thought, you know, that's actually not the reason I don't have tattoos. Mm. This is the reason. Um, but it did take my mother's body into consideration, which is why I asked her permission. Yeah. The real reason I don't have any tattoos is not my story to tell. It's my mother's. Once walking down Bedford Avenue in my 20s, I called her as I did, as I do. I told her how I wanted a tattoo on the back of my neck, something minor but permanent. And she is an artist. I wanted her to create the design, a symbol, a fish I dream of every night, an underwater talisman, a mother's gift on my body. To be clear, I thought she'd be honored. But do we ever really know each other fully? A silence like a hospital room. She was in tears. I swore then that I wouldn't get one. Wouldn't let a needle touch my neck, my arm, my torso. I'd stay me, my skin, the skin she welcomed me into the world with. It wasn't until later that I knew it wasn't so much the tattoo, but the marking, the idea of scars. What you don't know, and this is why this is not my story, is that my mother is scarred from burns over a great deal of her body. Most from an explosion that took her first child she was carrying in her belly. Others from the skin grafts, where they took skin to cover what needed it. She was in her late twenties when that happened, outside her studio in the center of town. You have to understand, my mother is beautiful, tall and elegant, thin and strong. I have not known her any other way. Her skin that I mapped with my young fingers, its strange hardness in places, its patterns like quilts here, riverbeds there. She's wondrous, preternatural, survived fire, the ending of an unborn child. Heat and flame and death all made her into something seemingly magical a phoenix s what i know now is she wanted something else for me for me to wake each morning and recognize my own flesh for this one thing she made me to remain how she intended for one of us to make it out unscathed I was thinking about the way you and I are different poets, (laughs) (laughs) different from each other. And 
the poems are mostly on the shorter side. Um, this one was in couplets. The ones that you read before um, were in usually in regular stanzas um, or one stanza. They're very uh, lyrical and dense. The language, by dense, I just mean that the that the language is dense. The the syntax and the is sort of um, a muscular syntax pulled over the lines. The line breaks are gorgeous. They're very, like, carefully made, but also vulnerable, not, like, flashy or, or something. But they... Thank but you they, for that. Yeah, no. Thank you. Um, and, I, you know, I've just been thinking about this so much, about... Because in some ways, you are a very traditional poet, and working with very contemporary, very feminist um, material. But also, I'm thinking very much about, I'm sorry, this is like the most meandering <laughs> question. Sorry. But, you know, I was thinking a lot about this uh, talk that you gave that I watched, um, Poetry as Elegy. Um, but you talk a lot about, you start off the the talk sort of thinking about why so many people turn to poetry in a state of loss or in a state of grief, um, particularly around the loss of a loved one. And some of the, the things that you talk about in terms of why that might be, why poetry is particularly good at uh, being a space to investigate grief or to keep a grieving person company is really it really becomes the things that I love most about poetry in and out of a state of grief. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is not a question. Well, I think there is a question in there a little bit. Um, and I think one of the things I just want to respond to your own conversation with yourself about the longer form, I mean, don't apologize for abundance, you know? I mean, abundance is a wonderful thing. Mm. I I mean, you know, I feel like men don't apologize for abundance. I know, and I do wonder if, I if just, the uh, editor I, would be asking. I would, just, I would just question that. Yeah. I just, that's all I want to say. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then moving on, I want to say one of the things that is really important to me about why poetry is my favorite form. Mm. I like writing essays. I like writing lectures. I love writing fiction. I, you know, I like to play, but why poetry is so essential and why I feel like it's my natural voice is because it has breath built into it. Mm. And the breathing part of poetry is really important to me. And the fact that it has it in the line breaks and it has it in those stanza breaks and it has it around it and what that blank page around the poem does is really important to me. And I love that space. And it, I think it does sometimes make room for another person to come into it. Um, you know, I for me... It sounds so stupid to talk about breath, but I feel like breath, we take it so much for granted. Um, and 
the fact that poetry has that moment when you come to it, that even there's space around it and you can see it and you think, oh, and you kind of take a breath before you even enter the poem. And then you take a little breath afterwards. Hmm. You know, if it's one stanza. Or if it's like multiple stanzas, you take these little breaths between it. And that's not like any other form that we have. And there's just something so, I don't know, beautiful about that, delicious about it, that it doesn't tell us when to breathe, but it allows for us to breathe. Mm. I had a similar conversation that's coming back to me right now, all in a rush with Jericho Brown, Mm. who I think um, formally right his poems are similar to yours um and he he said something very similar about about the poem and um about the breath and about kind of the sanctity of what poetry can do or make or make manifest with mm-hmm. language mm-hmm. and i think that that's also you know, when I think about poetry, I think very much about music. Mm. Um, and I do think that, that that idea of sound making, right? Um, and what that does with the body and how sometimes you read a poem and it actually affects your mood, if your blood changes, you know? I, you know, Poetry does that. And I feel like sometimes we we get lost in this idea of like, well, what does it mean? Or what is it, you know? But we never do that with songs. Yeah. You know, we listen to a song and we're like, but what is it about? We, we just don't do that. You know, nice song, but what does it mean? <laughs> we just, you know, we let the song be. And sometimes I feel like we don't do that enough with poetry. Yeah. I, I'm having so many thoughts that nothing can come out of my mouth right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm thinking about my sound project, and I'm thinking about performativity, and I'm thinking about the works on the page, and I'm thinking about some of the reasons that I took the line breaks out of my work, which I think had to do with a resistance to some of the things about poetry that were really bothering me at the time, about beauty, about madeness about but but that the consequence of that was something I'm not so fond of which is to lose the breath and to lose the space and to lose the the pacing and the uh and 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 the space for the reader and Mm. um I think I I think I also felt that uh for some readers poetry or something that looked like poetry was intimidating, mm. whereas prose was not. Mm. Um, and I think I was trying to sneak in some stuff there. What do you think um, is your favorite thing that poetry does? We made this episode about Sound Machine, and I had this amazing experience of having... Wayne Kostenbaum, Sharon Olds, Craig Morgan Teicher, and Kathy Park Hong, and my husband asked me questions. And one of the things that Craig was saying, poetry is a space where I'm not really ever talking about what happened. 
Um, it's all about the subtext and the context and all of the things that I'm thinking about what happens and all of the ways that I feel around what happens and the way my mind works and the way, um, uh, the, I guess the simultaneity and the complexity of, uh, human experience, mm. um, the the willingness of the poets that I really love. And this does not, it doesn't have anything to do with what form the poem is in. That's kind of how I know it's a poem and not some other thing. Yeah. I, that's, I love that about poetry too. It's, it's, you know, what is that great CD write quote, which is like the goal is not to make a story, but to experience the whole mess, mm-hmm. right? Like that, you know, it's the mess of it. Like, I mean, I I never understand when people say they don't have anything to write about because I'm like, everything is weird. And everything is, like the fact, <laughs> like I always think about how, like sometimes I'm on the subway and I think, I'm so proud of you all. <laughs> Look at you. You got up this morning and you got dressed. You've packed a lunch. You know, I'm like, look, you match. I'm so proud of you. Like living is hard. (laughs) And I don't know. I I like what you said about that because I do think it is that place for the real mess and complexity and, you know, pinning the dragon of the mind to the page. And and I think the other thing, which is related to what both of us are saying, um, is the way in which poetry is a, is a way of recording your life. Um, and it's a very particular kind of recording. It's not the only kind of recording that I like. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking like about Bernadette Mayer, um, who, there's this great interview that I think about so often where Charles Bernstein, it's from a long time ago, is interviewing Bernadette Mayer. And he says something like, well, but I mean, you know, if you could like get a computer, you know, this is really a long time ago. Um, and like just record everything, like all the details. I mean, you wouldn't want to record everything. And she says, yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> and he obviously, you know, totally did not expect her to say that. Um, but, you know, you know, what it what it means to come into contact with another human being, you know, through the page, you know, and to make um, people visible, um, especially for me, um, a kind of person who may not have been visible, either written about or writing their own life or a part of the self, of the body, of the mind, of the experience that hasn't really been put you know, into into literature, into a shareable um, place, because you know that's when I feel less alone mm. um, in the world. Mm. So when I'm writing, uh, you know, not necessarily every moment that I'm writing a first draft, but when writing and publishing, um, you know, knowing that there is an audience, that there's someone that I'm speaking mm. to, that I'm sharing, that this is a communication, this is a transmission, this is, you know, it's it's not it's not just a recording, you know, for me. It, you know, and, and I guess 
yeah, I don't, I don't know if non-human animals have this same need, um, but certainly the desire to connect with other beings, to mm-hmm. see one's experience, to Im- imaginatively empathize with others. I mean, I think that that seems like as essential a drive mm-hmm. as sex, yeah. Yeah. procreation, mm-hmm. um, you know, Touch. staying yeah. alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there was a time, and maybe you remember this, but I felt like there was a real moment when it felt like not only were poets writing poems solely for other poets, but then there was also this moment where it seemed to not want to connect, Mm -hmm. that wanting the connection and recognizing the reader was a sign of neediness or a sign of entertainment and I'm always I was always suspicious of that I thought that was there was something to me that felt ugly and privileged about it because I didn't believe it so you know I remember having a moment at a poetry reading 20 years ago and thinking, that's not true. That is a lie. You do not write to not connect. And it's bullshit. And I love the fact that we are more and more leaning into that connection and the confession that we want to connect the lovely thing about poetry also is that you get to be alone and connect. <laughs> it's really great for introverts, right? Is that we get to be alone and connect. What a dream. Net, that's you just also described why I do this podcast, yeah. you know? Alone and connect and and also just the way in which it it gives me this incredible opportunity to say Okay, Ada Limone, will you come over to my apartment and sit in a in my living room with me for two hours and talk about these, you know, deep personal things? I mean, what an amazing life yeah. to get to do that. We are so lucky to get to talk about what we love. Yeah. And get to do what we love. Yeah. You know, and it is a community. I mean, I love poets. But like, let's also be real, which is to say if nobody was listening to this, I wouldn't have had the nerve or the excuse to ask you to come. Mm. Um, like, I just, how could I? There's no form for it. There's no platform for it's it. It's just called lunch. Yeah, it is called lunch. <laughs> but but then I'm limited to having lunch with the people I already know. Mm, right. Right. And so that and I think that that is very similar. And you wouldn't nor should you have said yes. You know, you have other things to do. Um, And so it is to me, it's very similar to publishing. Mm. It's like, you know, I, I agree with you that there are, you know, no one should limit their writing. Um, And then everybody has different rules about 
what they're going to publish and what they won't publish and hurting other it's people personal, and yeah. stuff. It Absolutely. I guess for me, and I don't mean this to be like some kind of self-justification of, um, you know, making different choices, uh, but I think that there's some part of that has to do with this feeling of that publication is not more important than someone's heart um, and, and someone's relationship. But it is not as simple as this kind of secondary thing. Like it is also at the heart of the writing process for me. Those two are not separate. No, I mean, one is your life and then one is the thing that you do to save your life. I mean, <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> they are very, very important. Like, you know, I take poetry so seriously. I mean, I have friends that say you don't play enough in your poems, you know. Mm. And I, I'm like, oh, I think I get really funny in some of my poems. But I, I do take it seriously. And I take it seriously because it saves my life. It saves my life every day. Mm. You know, not just writing, but reading other people's poems and being with poetry and that deep attention that it allows me. I mean, it, in a very real way, I've had a poem save me. Mm. And I think of that poem all the time. And I, you know, I think that's the other thing that we used not to do. We used to kind of have to pretend that like, oh yeah, poetry, whatever, it's, you know, I don't take it, don't take it personally. Like, it's personal. It's our life, you know? So, of course, like, if you feel bad about a rejection or you feel like it's okay to feel that way, you know? It's okay, you know, if you don't win a prize or if you don't get longlisted or if you, that's okay to have those emotions if we yeah. go back to the prize conversation. Like, that, that is okay. It's okay to also want to go up there and appreciate the time you've spent writing a book. Um, and yes, it's about us, but it's also about the work that we've spent this time creating and putting it into the world. You know, that's, we take it personally because we take it seriously. The poem that saved you, was it your poem? Was it the writing or it was someone else's? It was someone else's poem. Uh, um, I mean, I think my world shifted when I first read One Art by Elizabeth Bishop when mm -hmm. I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. My world shifted. Poems that have saved me again and again, I mean, I think that, I think a lot about Robert Haas's poem, um, Faint Music. And, you know, that poem, I think, it's such a complex poem. And everyone always talks about meditation and Lagunitas, but I think, Really, it's like his, it's just an opus. It's just an amazing, amazing poem. And it begins, you know, maybe it's time to write a poem about grace when everything broken is broken. I mean, what? <laughs> it, you know, and then it goes on to tell the story about a friend whose heart is so broken that he is going to jump off the bridge and it doesn't take it like for granted. Like it is like, this is what's going to happen. And then he saves himself by looking at a sign that says, he thinks about the word seafood. 
And he thinks, why do they say seafood? And why don't restaurants just put fish up on the, their signs? And then he's like, oh, no, it's like it's for clams and mussels, <laughs> right? And then you, if you think about it, like he then kind of gets up from his days of like sleeping on the, you know, jumping side of the bridge and he puts on his coat and he, and he has this wonderful line where he's like, he, and he, he, he carefully goes over the, the, um, the ridge of the, the bridge. So it's like suddenly he's caretaking of himself, right? And if you think about that poem, what saved the man is thinking about language. Hmm. What saves him from jumping is thinking about language and the failure of language. Mm. I mean, yeah, I think about that poem all the time. Mm. Thank you, Ada. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You have been listening to episode 76 of Commonplace with poet Ada Limon. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Katie Fernelius, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. The music you're listening to was written by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin and performed by Judah on keyboard and Moses Zucker-Gorin on guitar. Many thanks to Milkweed Press and Autumn House for books for this episode and to all the presses who have sent us books. Thank you, Omain Gruich and Justin Todd Smith, for transcribing this and other episodes. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to everyone who supports Commonplace through encouraging emails, letters, tweets, and Instagram posts, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. <laughs>